This afternoon we're going to deal with what Scripture teaches us regarding the seventh commandment as it's summarized for us in Lord's Day 41, and as we confess it there. And to give that background, we're going to read from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to read the first eight verses, 1 Thessalonians 4. Here we read as follows. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We also turn then to Lord's Day 41, the Catechism. Page 556. Lord's Day 41 reads as follows. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit... It is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our study of the, seventh, of the Ten Commandments, we have now come to the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you think about this commandment on a superficial level, it may seem quite different from the other commandments. After all, the other commandments 
so far have dealt with things that harm either our relationship with God or with our neighbor. Take, for instance, the previous commandment, you shall not murder. If you, can, if you transgress that commandment on a literal level, then your relationship, the harm to your neighbor is immediate and drastic. Now that kind of drastic consequence you do not necessarily get with the seventh commandment. Not right away. So the seventh commandment is different from all the other ones. And not only that, but the catechism groups all forms of sexual immorality under the heading of the seventh commandment. Now even unbelievers, many unbelievers would still agree that Adultery is wrong. But almost nobody agrees it's wrong for two unmarried people to do whatever they want together. I think, look, if you have two consenting adults and they both enjoy themselves, does it really matter? Is it really that bad? There's no harm done, is there? So the passage that we read together from 1 Thessalonians 4 would be considered absurd by just about everyone today. And it's hard for us not to be influenced by that attitude as it filters down to us through our culture. But here's something you should understand. Unbelievers back then considered what the Bible said about immorality to be just as absurd as unbelievers do today. There was an orator and politician called Demosthenes who lived three and a half centuries before this letter was written. He put it best. He said, quote, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households, end quote. And that was a common attitude. That was, in fact, the prevalent attitude that Paul had to confront in person and in his writings. And these, person that he, these people that he was writing to, these Thessalonians, were new converts. They didn't even have tradition to fall back on. They, they came out of that culture that told them those things. See, we're different that way. We at least still have some form of social pressure to keep us in line, even if nothing else does. Even if you don't accept this commandment with all of your heart, you are still going to be inclined to keep it simply because of the social pressure placed on you by the rest of your church community. Now, we're not suggesting that that motivation in and of itself is a good thing. But the point is that the Thessalonians didn't even have that. They didn't even have that sort of tradition or social pressure to fall back on. They were brand new converts, only a couple of months old, really. Still dripping with the waters of baptism, so to speak. And they found it difficult to understand what the Word of God had to say to them about sexuality. And at least some of them must have found it difficult to put it into practice because otherwise the apostle would not have written these things. And that is why he writes to remind them of what he said previously. And it's a good reminder to us as well. True conversion is the dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new. And if that's ever going to be more than just words, it has to have an impact in our lives as well. It has to affect our bodies as well. Every part of our existence falls under that, including 
our sexuality. All of it becomes holy. Therefore, God desires our physical holiness, and that is the gospel, as I can preach it to you this afternoon, as it comes to us in the seventh commandment, that God desires our physical holiness, and He calls you to physical holiness, and He enables your physical holiness. So, what does it mean to be holy? Essentially, to be holy means to be set apart. And God is inherently holy. That means that He is perfectly and completely set apart from all created things. He is in a category of His own. This is a part of who He is. Everything else that is holy has a derived holiness. That means that that somebody had to make it holy. Somebody had to set it apart for God. For example, the altar that was used in the Old Testament temple services had to be consecrated before it could be used. To be consecrated simply means to be devoted to God's use. It had to be set apart for God. It had to be made holy. Only then could God accept the offerings that were made on it. So everything that was holy had a derived holiness. But God alone in all the universe is inherently holy. That means His holiness is a part of who He is and His very essence. When we belong to God, we share in that holiness. We receive a derived holiness from belonging to Him. And that's what God wants. In Leviticus 19 verse 2, for example, He says to His people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, you belong to Me because you you are Because you belong to me, you are holy, and therefore you need to live accordingly. Now, why does God want us to be holy? Because if we're not, we cannot be in His presence. And that's a problem for us because by nature, people are not holy. By nature, human beings are sinners. God is the one who sanctifies them. God is the one who has to make sinners holy. So holiness, in that sense, is how we stand in relation to God. Now, God has made us holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the letter to the Hebrews, it says this very clearly to us. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, if under the old covenant, God already set people apart for Himself through the blood of animal sacrifices, how much more are we set apart for Him now through the blood of Christ? We belong to Him, body and soul. As we confess in Lord's Day 1. And interestingly, that phrase, body and soul, does come back in Lord's Day 41 as well. In in the answer 109, it says, Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. So there's, in a sense, a a, a reference there back to Lord's Day 1. Every part of life has to be holy, and that includes our bodies. And because we belong to Christ, we are already holy, but there's another way in which we are becoming holy. Now, how does that work? Well, one way to illustrate this is with the idea of a child who is being adopted. 
Imagine that you have parents who have a child that is terribly neglected. Sad, but it does happen sometimes. The child does not get enough to eat. It looks visibly unhealthy. Picture this child before you, malnourished, badly socialized. And then one day, both parents die in a car accident. But this child had an uncle, a rich uncle. And he decides to adopt this child. And because he has adopted this child, the, the child has a different surname. It receives a different surname. Now, this uncle already had children of his own, but he feels sorry for this child, and he's glad to take it under his wings. So now the child has a different name. It belongs in a different family. It is, in a sense, brought within the sphere of this family, but it still looks the same. It wears different clothing. It sleeps in a different house, but it still looks unhealthy, and it will still for a while. It will take a number of months of good food and medical care before this child starts to look like the other children. And that's a little bit how holiness works in this passage. There are two sides to it. On the one hand, we are already holy in the sense that we belong to God. Body and soul, we have already been set apart by the blood of Christ. But on the other hand, verse 3 in our reading refers to our sanctification. Sanctification is simply the process of becoming holy. Sanctification is, it means that what you are in Christ now is applied to your life by the Holy Spirit. Now, one place where we see this illustrated is in baptism. We witnessed a baptism this afternoon, the baptism of Hudson Reed de Jong. And baptism represents both aspects of this holiness. In Belgian Confession, Article 34, we confess that by baptism we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to Him whose mark and emblem we bear. So on the one hand, in baptism, we are set apart from all peoples and false religions. We are set apart as holy to the Lord. On the other hand, we are to be as it says, entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. And that is something that you can only grow into. That grows over time. It will grow for little Hudson as well as he learns to live out of the promises that God made to him in his baptism. He is holy and yet he also needs to be sanctified. And all of us who have been baptized need to learn the same thing. So you see, holiness is something that involves every part of our life, including the parts covered by the seventh commandment. There are many people who believe that holiness is simply about moral improvement. But if, you, if you've been following the argument so far, you will understand that it is so much more than that. Holiness is about living out of a transformed identity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God Himself. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power of God Himself. So this is not just about your good resolutions. This runs much deeper than that. Holiness is a fundamental part of your conversion. And remember, what is conversion? It is the dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new. What is the new nature? It is to be what we were in the beginning, recreated in the image of God, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. So holiness involves our whole life. 
We are, says the Catechism, to live chaste and disciplined lives, both within and outside of holy marriage. Now, you might still wonder, why is this necessary? What is this connection between holiness and the seventh commandment? Well, our passage answers that question on a number of different levels, if you follow along in here, chapter 4. First, it says in verse 3, this is a will of God, your sanctification. And it says then that our growth in holiness is necessary because this is the will of God. Why is it necessary? Because it's a will of God, your sanctification. And that alone already should settle it. Really, if this was all that we had, then that would already be enough for us. Because it is pleasing to God, it is His will, and why on earth would a believer not want to please God? Is He not Lord of every part of our lives? Did Christ not pay for us with His blood? So how then can we think that this command is optional? Or worse yet, how can we go our own way while paying lip service as if all God is interested in is our words? Words are cheap. To really please God means that we make His priorities ours. That's His will. That's what verse 3 is telling us. People so often wonder, what, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do with my life? Well, He spells it out right here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's purpose for our lives is that we more and more live out of the holiness that He has declared us to have. This is a will of God, your sanctification. And the first example of that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The second reason why it is necessary to live a life of physical holiness is because people who don't do so show that they don't know God. Verse 5 of our reading refers to Gentiles. The Gentiles, um, in uh, biblical vocabulary, a Gentile is someone who is an unbeliever, someone who does not know God. And to them, immorality is not immoral. It's not a problem to them. Ephesians 4 verse 18 says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And then he goes on to say, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. He's saying, you know better. You're not like these people, these Gentiles. Knowing God is more than just knowing about his existence or being well-versed in a doctrinal system. He says, he doesn't say that's how you learned about Christ. He says, he doesn't say that is not the way that you learned about Christ. He says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. You know Christ, you know better than this. Paul is saying you can't possibly know Christ and then still be a slave to lust. Lust is an intense longing or craving that governs your behavior. And he's saying here that if you are controlled by lust, you do not know the Spirit of God. And so God calls us to physical holiness so that we are not like unbelievers. And the third reason why God calls us to physical holiness is because immorality is a form of fraud. And he touches on that in verse 6. He says, no one should transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now the context seems to suggest he's specifically referring to adultery. Adultery is a form of fraud because you take something that is very precious, that belongs to a 
You're taking something very precious that belongs to a person's spouse, and you are taking that for your own pleasure. That is a form of fraud. But that definition easily extends to premarital sex as well. Sometimes people think, well, as long as neither of us is married, then it doesn't matter as much. But this is wrong, because the same principle applies. If, if that person then later on does get married to someone else, then you have, in a sense, taken something that belonged to that future spouse. You have taken it. You've stolen something that wasn't yours to take. And Paul is very solemn here. He's very solemnly warning his readers. There were people in his days as well who said, well, God is not that concerned about my morality. There have always been people in church history who have said that. We call them antinomians, people who are against the law of God. They say, if I, if I'm already, if I already belong to Christ, if I've already been set apart by him, it doesn't really matter how I live. I, I already am called holy. Paul says in verse 6, you know what, if you don't take this teaching seriously, you need to understand that the Lord is an avenger. That's what it says in verse 6. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. You might get away with defrauding your brother in this way, he says, but you cannot get away from the Lord. And so there are eternal consequences to living in unrepentant sexual sin, as there are eternal consequences to living in all unrepentant sin. God desires your physical holiness. And maybe you've compromised that holiness at some point in the past. God called you to holiness and you chose impurity. And now you deeply regret it. And the words of the catechism ring in your ears. All unchastity is cursed by God. That's a very sobering warning. But the Bible also reminds us if we belong to Christ, He experienced that curse for us. Christ was the Holy One of God. The only one in the only man in the history of the human race who was inherently holy. It's interesting how, how the demons in the Gospel of Mark sometimes address Him that way. He said, they say to him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know. Christ was the Holy One of God, and he became impure and unclean for us. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All sexual sin is inherently self-serving. Christ was the opposite of self-serving. Christ laid down his life for his sheep. He never did a selfish thing in all his life on earth. He did that to make us holy to live the perfect life that we should have lived but never did. And he continues to extend that holiness to us. There is forgiveness in his blood. We heard it again this morning, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, including all of our sexual transgressions. Not only does he remove our transgressions from us, but he renews us completely. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what grace looks like. But then do not ignore him. To then defile ourselves willingly anyway is a terrible thing. Verse 6 of our reading says that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Who is the Lord? It is Christ. He is the one who will take vengeance on those who reject him on the day of judgment. If you are presently living in unrepentant sexual sin, or if there is sin in your past that you never fully repented from, you have to take these words to heart. This is urgent. Do not put it off. The Lord is an avenger. You do not know when you will be summoned before him. Our reading is very clear on the solemnity of this warning. And to make the point even more strongly, Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. To reject the holiness of God is to reject the Spirit of God, the one who makes your sanctification possible. God calls you to physical holiness, but he does not ask you to answer that call on your own. He enables you to do so through that same spirit. And we're going to look at that in our second point. God calls you to physical holiness. That is to say, he has declared you holy. He has set you apart. And now he calls you to live that out in your day-to-day life. But you cannot answer that call on your own. That is why he has given you his Holy Spirit, as verse 8 of our passage says. And that Spirit is there constantly equipping you in the fight against sin, letting you live out of his power. The Holy Spirit, the power of God, the Holy Spirit is there constantly equipping you in the fight against sin, letting you live out of his power, the power of God. The Holy Spirit was there at creation hovering above the waters. According to Psalm 104, the Holy Spirit is involved in the changing of the seasons and similar patterns of nature. The fact that the winter rains have ended and that it's becoming warm again now is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit equipped the craftsmen in the desert with the technical skill they needed to build the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost and enabled them to speak multiple languages. The Holy Spirit can do anything because He is God, the third person of the Trinity. And this is especially encouraging to our youth. If you belong to God, you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have all of the power of God available to you to fight sin. And the world does not respect that power. The world thinks that because you're youth, you're completely unable to resist any kind of temptation. The very best advice that the world can give to you is to use birth control. That's their best advice. See, they're operating from a position called biological determinism. Biological determinism says that your behavior is completely shaped by your environment and by your circumstances and by your drives. So they're basically saying to you, you're, you're just a highly developed animal. We're not going to give you credit for any kind of self-control because that would be expecting too much. 
And sometimes we buy into that. But you know what? If you believe that, you're denying the power of the Holy Spirit. You've lost the battle for holiness already before it's even begun. And our passage today says it doesn't have to be that way. God not only calls you to physical holiness, but He enables that holiness as well through His Spirit. Concretely, what does it look like? Verse 4 says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In other words, it's about self-control. The fight for holiness begins by setting up boundaries for yourself in your life and in your relationships. And here is where we diverge from the world because the world thinks that any kind of boundary is a restriction on your personal freedom. You should, they say, be able to do whatever you want. But that's not what freedom is about. We just had a train pass by here. Where does it run best? Where does the train belong? It belongs on the tracks. And it's true, the tracks do restrict movement. This train can only ever go from point A to point B. But you know what? If you were to take away one of those tracks, even one, you would have a spectacular derailment. That's life without self-control. So self-control and obeying God's law is not a restriction but a blessing. Uncontrolled desire leads to slavery. It is slavery because this desire is never satisfied. You're given once, just once, because, well, just once and you're satisfied for a while. And then eventually you become dissatisfied and so you go back and, and then you go through the cycle again. And that is the lie behind the illusion. Sin cannot ever fully satisfy you. Sin does not have that capacity. If it did, then why do you keep on coming back? That's why God commands self-control and then enables it through the Holy Spirit. Self-control is not a, a yoke, it is a gift. But the question is, do you want self-control? Is this something you want? Think carefully before you say yes. A lot of people who struggle with sin in this area say that they want it, but they don't really mean it. What they mean is that they want they want their problem to go away without self-sacrifice. Or they want it for the wrong reasons, because self-control can save you trouble in the long run. They don't yearn for God. They don't long for His holiness. They don't crave His glory. They just want self-control so that they can move on with meeting their own goals or maybe putting up some kind of impression of holiness. God is not going to bless that kind of half-hearted effort. If you want the gift of self-control, you need it for the right reasons. And you need to have a plan in place. You need the support of a community. How else are you going to deal with temptation when it strikes again. And if you don't think you need any of that, are you sure that you're ready for change? Do you really desire change? It is the will of God that each one of us learns to control his or her body. But you know what's really interesting about our passage is that it never spells out how to learn that self-control. Instead, it points us to a person, Jesus Christ. And there it leaves us. It presents Christ to us and leaves us there. He has freed us from the power of sin. He has broken the guilt and the condemnation that comes with it. 
And as you come to know him more and more, then self-control and holiness become obvious. It becomes desirable. It becomes the most natural thing in the world. And then you realize the truth behind verse 7. God has not called us to impurity. God has called us to holiness. Wonderful, splendid, abundant holiness. You were baptized, were you not? That means God has promised to wash you with His Holy Spirit. Remember what it says in Lord's Day 26. To be washed with the Spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. That is what God promised you in your baptism. God promised you that if you turn to Him in faith, you will overcome. As it says, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and Spirit wash away the impurity of my soul that is all my sins. So be encouraged, dear brothers and sisters. God wants us to share in His holiness. He wants us to pursue holiness, not just physically, but in all aspects of life. So join in the pursuit again this week with renewed energy. Strive for that holiness. Delight in it when you find it, and delight in God, because He said, be holy, because I am holy. Amen.